This is Bigger Questions with your host, Robert Martin. Welcome to Bigger Questions. Today's big question, what wisdom is gained from mountaintops? Now, we usually record Bigger Questions before a live audience in Melbourne's CBD, but instead today I'm at the top of Mount Dandenong, 35 kilometres east of the Melbourne CBD for a special recording. My guest today is Dr. Simon Angus. Simon is a senior lecturer in economics at Monash University. He has described himself as a specialist generalist. His research is united thematically by complexity science. Simon also serves as a lay pastor at City on a Hill, Melbourne. He's accompanying me on our walk up Mount Dandenong and he joins me now. Welcome, Simon. G'day, Rob. Thanks for having me. Great that you can join us. It's a lovely view up here on the top of the mountain. Yeah, I think it um, expresses beautifully how flat Melbourne is and how high this hill is with this climb. <laughs> That's right. We've climbed it. And yes. Um, now, Simon, you're a specialist generalist. Is that because you get bored easily? Uh, no, quite the contrary. My problem is I'm interested in too much. So I guess from an early age, um, I've been very curious about all sorts of things growing up in a sort of scientific family. And yep. it was never presented to me with partitions or names. Um, and so whether it was yeah out like we are now in the outdoors or in the lab or uh, head in the books with theory, it all looked interesting to me. And um, so I've probably continued that appetite long beyond what someone ought to um, but I, it has been a fascinating ride and I've discovered I guess complexity science along the way which expresses um, something of a similar curiosity. Yeah so what exactly is complexity science then? Yes yeah, so science of complexity or complexity science is somewhat coming in vogue. Um, there are I think there's an increasing realisation that many systems that we live in and we see around us all the time are actually what we could call complex systems. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean complicated so like a, a car engine is a complicated uh, system. There's lots of moving parts and uh, there are um, a certain degree of complicated skills needed to design and build one. But it's actually a very highly designed object and uh, it operates in a way that's quite well understood. You press the accelerator, you know, you, you do certain things to it and it does the same things a thousand times over. Yeah. A complex system, on the other hand, is complicated, but it's also complex in the sense that the interactions, the network of kind of connected interactions interactions in the system are so uh, so vast and so intricate that it's not possible to do the same thing sort of a thousand times over and get the same result. You might get a different result a thousand times over. Mm -hmm. And um, so systems that are like this, you probably well know. So the economic system is a, is, a, is a complex system. There's got lots of moving and interacting parts and the networks or the interactions really matter. So complexity science is a science which has been alive for about 30 years, starting to ask the questions of how can we understand better these systems with their strong network effects, often non-linear dynamics, things happen very quickly, and uh, to try and model them, understand them, and possibly even predict them, which is very difficult to do. Mm. So what particularly excites you about complexity science? What excites me about it is that um, it's quite difficult, um, and difficult problems to scientists yeah. are quite interesting, kind yeah. of innately. And I think uh, it also meshes with my kind of wonder for, and I think it's sort of a human wonder, if you ask most people what they like about music or uh, artwork, typically it's not that it's simple. Um, there's a simplicity and a beauty perhaps, but there's also a complexity to it. Mm. The complexity expresses something that's deep or profound. And in a similar way, I think complex systems have that allure, that uh, at one end I can look at it and sort of get a feel for it. Maybe there are simple processes which uh, drive it, but the, co the sort of self-organisation and the complexity of its dynamics is, is lovely, interesting, beguiling, and uh, it, it seems a, an object worthy of study. Mm. Now, Simon, we've been walking up a mountain today. What do you enjoy about a mountain walk? 
lots of things. Uh, it's not at the office. It's getting outside. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's engaging with nature. It's fresh air. Um, but also, I mean, I do a lot of uh, endurance sport, uh, trail running, cycling, uh, and so on. The longer, the better. Yeah. Um, sometimes multi-day. And so getting out, you know, getting the pulse up, moving around, getting air in your lungs, it just I enjoy it uh, it's a great break so would you classify walking up a mountain as a complex activity do you think or is it just a bit straightforward uh, <laughs> if you do it in a large group of people like in the Tour de France I think it's, I think it's complex if you yeah. do it as we are just a few people coming up a mountain today uh, it's a relatively simple pleasure okay very good um, now here we're at the top of the mountain overlooking at Melbourne now do you think there's something special or significant about mountaintops I think so I think um we do like perspective, us humans, and I think uh, we often talk about being in the valley or in the depths um, when it's a difficult time, a dark time perhaps, and our head coming up, fresh air, these sorts of things. We've got language and, and sort of cultural metaphors for what it means to, to, to come up higher and to see. And like the view today, we can see all of the city of Melbourne, we can see its suburbs, we can see the bay, we can see the other mountains on the other side. It's very difficult to come up here and not be struck by the new perspective it brings, mm, and mm. it somehow makes the granularity of life um, more more understandable. And mm. so I, th I think there is something special about the perspective that mountains bring. Um, there's also the kind of hard work of climbing up, <laughs> which I think um, adds their own sense of you know sometimes we get ideas and so on when we're working hard. But um, I think I think it's this perspective that I think mountains really bring, and the, the idea that we're a little higher, a little further away, a little more distant, we can reframe the world in a different in a different way mm. i suppose we could almost appreciate the complexity of the city from up here you can see different elements of, of the city that all function together but you can see it now uh, by coming higher you can actually gain that perspective indeed and i you know we're all google people now um that's i think that's the beauty that you could spend you know and i know people actually spend uh, hours just looking at google earth google maps just for the perspective it, it's a, it's it's fascinating and mm. i think in a similar way while we've done it probably a bit more honestly climbing the mountain um, <laughs> we we do love it and i think exactly right we can see the complexity of melbourne laid out mm. now as part of your complex life uh you describe yourself uh, as a scientist science is a part of your complexity so do you like science yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think um, there's lots of reasons why I like it, but probably principally, I discovered recently, um, relatively recently, I was reflecting on this question myself um, for my own means. I was thinking, why is it that I enjoy science? It's because I think I like exploring and adventuring in, in the real world. Mm. And I realised that science, um, we don't, when, we, when we're kind of exploring and investigating knowledge and trying to come up with new knowledge, so to speak, we... We realise that actually it's kind of like once you know something in science, it, it usually leads to a whole bunch of new questions. Mm. It's unlike, therefore, climbing mountains or, you know, getting to some point uh, in space, you know, the sort of the National Geographic expedition to go and get to the South Pole or, or climb some mountain. Once you've got there, as heroic and wonderful as that is, you've made it. It's done. Yeah. Whereas in science, actually, that exploration, that adventure never ends. Um, we sort of believe that human knowledge or the knowledge that's in the world is, is never-ending, is infinite, if you like. And so there is no no end. There's no, there's no final point. Uh, there's no finish line to the scientific project. And whilst in one sense that can feel a bit demoralising, like my work <laughs> will never be done, in another sense that's tremendously exciting. It's as if you're in a world that's been created without limits, uh, this, this, this mental world, uh, this knowledge scape, and uh, that's very exciting. And, and more than that, these discoveries 
typically we're in the business because we're trying to learn things which will improve not only understanding of ourselves but, but improve the lives of others. And I suppose it also keeps scientific academic journals um, alive as well, doesn't it? There's uh, always stuff to be published. There is, in <laughs> fact, yeah. There is probably too many journals in the world. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, and I think the, uh, you need to know, Rob, that the median, that is the kind of I lay out all the papers ever written, I get the kind of one that's in the middle in terms of number of times it's actually been cited by another paper. The median citation of a scientific paper is zero. <laughs> Okay. So there's a heck of a lot of science which is known to the author and no one else, I'm Nobody. afraid. Uh, we try to we try to publish at the other end of the distribution. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's that's probably the one of the goals of science is actually people reading your science, understanding it. But so there's similarities, but and also differences, I suppose, between climbing a mountain and the scientific endeavour. It's a you know, walk, but it's unlike climbing a mountain. We can actually get to the top, but with science, it never ends. Yeah. That's um, right. Yeah. Now. Now, Simon, you've talked a little bit about your life as a scientist, yet you're also the lay pastor of a church. So what convinced you to become a Christian believer? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, I don't have a partitioned brain. I don't, as I've said before, I don't see myself as um, the Christian part and the science part. And I think that's um, deeply unhelpful. I actually considered myself a Christian probably growing up. I was in a God-fearing household. Um, but I got to university, I actually went to uh, in Sydney to the University of New South Wales and I got to meet some Christians who um, were actually reading their Bibles, uh, mm -hmm. which was unusual uh, for me, and uh, we kept talking about this guy, Jesus, and yeah. he hadn't figured largely in my upbringing. And I worked out fairly quickly that I wasn't one of the people who followed Jesus. And um, so I spent probably a few years um, quite away from Christianity and I was the guy at university who asked lots of questions of the Christians and other religions and uh, I was reading a lot of other you know, literary theory and others and, and I was probably not a very nice chap to talk to but I was <laughs> I was spending my time basically trying to make life difficult for um, for, for believers yeah. of, of any type. Um, then about the end of third year, I wanted to put this question to bed. It was niggling and I kept meeting these people. And something about the Christians particularly was their lives were uncharacteristically different. Um, and, you know, at university you meet people of different political and other persuasions. But even the Marxist or the, you know, the deep feminist didn't seem actually to have such a changed, embeddedly changed life as the Christians I met. And um, I, I sort of had this niggling question: Why would you? Why would you do that? Why would you change in such a way? And I wanted to put it to bed. So I thought, well, Christianity is one of those uh, religions this should be easy for because um, it claims to be historical. So I'll go to my massive university library, hire out some books, particularly books written by non-Christian authors, so they weren't, you know, subject to bias. I was, you know, with my scientific hat on. And uh, I read um, a bunch of uh, texts uh, over one summer, and um, I had a list of questions, actually, which started with, was Jesus even a real historical figure? Yep. Uh, I settled that one fairly quickly in the affirmative. Yep. And, uh, and I moved through to, can, I, you know, can we believe and trust the histories about him in the Gospels? And then, did he really die? Uh, it actually seems important to the Christian story that he died a real death. Yep. And then, obviously, did he come back to life? And... At the end, I remember quite clearly one night in my kind of dorm room at college with you know, a stack of books next to me, and I'd spent this time thinking and reflecting about it and processing, and it was a very private thing. I hadn't told any of these people that I'd been talking to about this journey. <laughs> yeah. I came to this sort of quite difficult and uncomfortable realisation that the explanation that Jesus rose from the dead um, by the power of God was the most reasonable 
explanation for, for the Jesus event, uh, what had happened then. It's clear many historians acknowledge something special happened. What exactly and why uh, is kind of a debate. And But I thought, no, the biblical account, the gospel account, and then what happened in the lives after, and all, it all coheres with this this, this theory that actually this guy, is it, this was a special death and a very special resurrection and uh, it did actually happen in history. And from then it was almost like a light going on in history, in biblical history, that that's one thing I knew and that light started shining out through both forward and backwards in the Bible as I thought, well, that kind of validates and makes everything else true because if I'm going to believe that God raised a king from the dead... Mm. Uh, a future king of a new heavens and new earth, well then um, I've got a fairly, you know, there's not much that this God cannot do. And in fact, that makes sense of everything else he promised and said in the rest of the Bible. And so then I felt, unlike all the rest of my studies, a real baby in this area. And I kind of put myself into all sorts of training and teaching and and and, and study about the Bible and about Christianity because I, I then just had this enormous thirst for a whole new whole new area of, 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 mm. of knowledge mm. and my curiosity again was 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 picked and um and i must say that as i've kept growing and understanding christianity um it's christianity is not the not the question you resolve once it's a kind of a question you resolve many times of many days am i still walking with jesus is it still the way I, the fork in the road is presented many times over i've continued to choose jesus and um that for me makes complete sense of not only what happened to him but also increasingly i see such a coherence in how it explains even how and why we do science and mm. um i think for me, it's um, it it adds up. It makes sense, and it's coherent. And uh, in science, that's the kind of theory we love: is one that's coherent, has explanatory power, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and uh, and and works in sort of a deeply satisfying way to slake our curiosity. Mm. So you find it satisfying? Yeah, I do. I think, um, in fact, more than that, I would say that the challenge is actually for atheist scientists to come up with a reason why science even works. Mm. Um, I find Christianity um, satisfying personally from a sense that it gives a, a centre to my life and a, and a truth which centres all that I do. And uh, someone once described me as someone who likes things uh, from the ground up uh, to be true, and that's true. I generally go back to first principles and like everything to kind of add up. And Christianity, I feel like, gives that cosmic foundation, which from then I can build my understanding of basically mm. everything. And as a scientist, it actually it provides a reason why I think the world has got, for starters, knowledge in it, and why, as no knowing beings, science is even possible. And so there's a coherence to actually why, uh, if we've got a God who has got knowledge in him and he's made a world infused with knowledge, and that's this is what the Bible tells us, and he's made people with sort of special qualities who are knowing beings who kind of, there's a matching between the way they know, the tools they have, and the knowledge that's in the world. These are all the elements, actually, that science needs to, to the program to actually work. If you don't have these elements in the world and you have not re no reason for that, all you can really fall back on as a scientist is, well, my methodology of knowledge discovery, it's worked yesterday, mm. and so I hope it will work tomorrow. Mm. It's, it's not a, almost that, kind of a blind faith. Well, it is, and it's not. It's not terribly satisfying. Um, and I think when scrutinised, um, mm. for better or worse, not many scientists scrutinise that. Um, and I think there's lots of temptations to actually uh, build some sort of edifice on top of that, which um, pushes you away from an explanation with God. Um, but I think when scrutinised, that question will lead many scientists, and has we know, to a God-powered universe. Mm. Well, but although it's fairly common to believe that science and belief in God are actually an opposite. Position. For example, well-known scientist and atheist Richard Dawkins says that he's hostile to religion because he claims it subverts science and teaches us not to change our minds and saps the intellect. Though you disagree? Yeah, I do. I, 
Um, Richard Dawkins, um, I respect him deeply as a biologist and uh, I've read you know, his books and so on. As a proponent of religion and so on, um, his own atheist scientific friends, uh, there are some who really, um, I guess, wish he would uh, spend more time uh, thinking about and reflecting on uh, the religions that he speaks of, and I, I think I'd probably be in that camp. Uh, it's dissatisfying um, in terms of our knowledge to set them up in opposition, and instead we should respect and love science for what it can do and the power of it, but acknowledge the limitations, and I think that's where uh, Richard and others would do well to consider and to learn from uh, what what has been a wonderful journey of knowledge discovery uh, through other means and uh, revelation and others and so on and, and actually try to think clearly about a spiritual realm if there is one. Mm. So you don't think that religion teaches us to be content with ignorance? No, no, I don't. Um, <laughs> um, there may be religions for that, that that's true, that there's the kind of don't ask yeah. religion. Christianity is not one of them. Um, but that's your experience as well, I suppose. You ask lots of questions. Correct. And I think Christianity actually, as I've described, promotes and pushes and speaks to a God-powered universe with, uh, you know, knowing agents. And um, if you actually look at the history and philosophy of science, it's, it's Christians um, and others people of faith, but, but Christians have largely been people who have established universities, at least in the Western tradition and so on, because they are God-fearing uh, religious people, spiritual people, because they want and they see and understand a world infused with truth. And that's a world worthy and uh, wonderful to know. And they know that by understanding that world more and better, they might be able to love others uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a way that um, is fitting and right. And I think... Um, if anything, my faith encourages, exhorts me to use my skills and talents that God has made me with to explore more in this world for his glory and for the love and good of mankind. As part of Bigger Questions, we also reflect on the Bible. And today we're reflecting on mountains because we're sitting on top of one. Now, for those who might not be so aware with the contents of the Bible, there are a number of significant mountaintop moments in the Bible, aren't there, Simon? Yeah, that's right. In fact, I think if you searched mountain in the Bible, you'd get a lot of hits. Over 300. <laughs> I did that. <laughs> of course you did, Rob. Um, yeah, so there's a theme going throughout the Bible, going to the top of the mountain to receive wisdom. So Moses received the Ten Commandments on the top of a mountain, and Jesus delivered his most famous sermon on the mount. Do you think this is significant? Yeah, I think so. I think uh, similar to the discussion we had earlier about the perspective of mountains, there's a sense in which God contends with his people um, at the high points. I mean, clearly he contends with them in the low points as well. But where there is truth uh, being revealed, where he makes uh, his voice known and so on, there's often a mountain involved. And if you look at the history of Israel and so God's people and so on, the calling of God's people and their, their life, um, and then expressed through Jesus and so on, we we see actually mountains play very mm. heavily. So there's something something significant there that God's probably trying to tell us that mountains are important. It's it's his it's not his only place, but it's one of the one of the key places where he does contend and communicate with his people. But isn't it a bit primitive though? Like I mean going to the top of a mountain to receive wisdom or truth, I mean it reeks a little bit of mountain gods, you know, wouldn't it be appropriate might have been appropriate in the Bronze Age perhaps, but not in the modern age? Yeah, it's interesting. I Yes, perhaps, but I think um, if you speak to most people about where they seek 
wisdom today or where they go for um, solace, um, mountains is going to come up quite often. Um, we often, if we think about retreats or, you know, um, for detox or yoga or yeah. you know, mindfulness, which is very common these days, people need to actually get out of that city over there and take a, take a, take a deep breath. Typically, they go to the mountain. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a reason for that, for the reasons we talked about before. So I don't, I don't think we're dealing with something that's ephemeral and um, possibly um, you know, transient uh, part of human psyche. Uh, it's actually probably, it seems something fairly sticky that mm. humans enjoy and still enjoy, despite the changes in technology in our context, going to the mountains. So mm. I think God's onto something um, fairly deep here about what it is to be human. And uh, my, my reckoning would be he knows that. <laughs> Now, the particular part of the Bible we're reflecting on today comes from the Gospel of Mark, one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have. In Mark chapter 9, we encounter an event where Jesus leads three of his closest disciples, Peter, James and John, up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. So Simon, what's happening here? Yeah, it's an interesting um, moment um, in the life of Jesus, but also in you know the, the mates he takes with them to the mountain. It seems like there's something very special that Jesus wants to bring these guys into, that they will see and witness and they'll come to a deeper understanding of him um, through this experience. And we know that from the rest of the Bible, uh, the letters and the experiences of the some of these guys as they lived out their lives, um, after the life, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that coming back to this mountaintop experience is actually, it's, it's on their minds and it sometimes is explicit in the, in the text. So mm. this, this is one of those milestones um, in the life of Jesus, an important one. Kind of like a mountaintop experience in some ways. Definitely. Yeah. Then in verse 7, something really strange happens. It says, Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. What do you make of this? Yeah, well, I think so. I think we're led, we're, we're to understand that this voice is God. Uh, this is not the first time that God has spoken over or to his son uh, mm-hmm. in his life. Um, the idea of listening, listening to Jesus, not just as a teacher, but poten- potentially as in a prophet, someone who, who knows and understands the word of God and explains it to the people of God. This also, I think, comes back to something that uh, God promised would happen in, in someone to come, uh, a prophet who would come uh, back in. Deuteronomy when uh, talking to Israel, to his people, uh, that God would raise up someone like Moses, a, a prophet who would be able to speak God's truth to his people. And I think, so what seems to be happening is that as the Israelites at the time, probably looking, the Jewish people at the time looking at Jesus, they they had in their mind probably that God was bringing someone who might be a king, who might be a servant, um, or they might there, there'd be a servant to come, or there'd be a prophet to come. What what seems to be happening is God is laying all these titles on one man. He is. It's not three people to come or four people to come. It's a prophet, mm. it's a king, and it's a servant. They're all in the one person. And I think God in this particular passage is actually explaining and, and showing to these uh, these other uh, friends of Jesus. This is the prophet. Not mm. only is he the king, the suffering servant, but he is also the prophet. All of these things come true in him. They find their yes in Jesus. And he, when he speaks, he speaks my truth. Mm. Uh, when he lives, he lives my truth. And that's why you should listen to him. And exactly. That's why you should listen to him. So what difference has listening to Jesus made in your life? As someone who lived my life in the pursuit of truth in a very real way, I mean, my life... Um, my family was very scientific, many PhDs. Uh, my father uh, was, had 
very many publications and as do my sister and brother but and people you know, even read them yes yes <laughs> yes i'm actually they have <laughs> um, he's made important contributions as you know my brother and sister have as well um the there wasn't really a I guess there was no it wasn't it wasn't that there was no other option for me but um, personally I decided there was no other option than to do this truth thing this pursuit of knowledge thing because it it was it was just I don't know it's part of our DNA it was just something I was interested in listening to Jesus actually it, it completes and puts to rest an uneasiness that I guess I'd always carried with me which was I I felt like I knew a lot about various things and I was curious about them. I had explanations and understood the model and the method and the theory for many things, many natural phenomena in our world. But the, the whole spiritual realm, the God part, the, the kind of mystical uh, you know, sideshow that seemed to be this whole thing, it seemed to keep coming up and not just externally but in my own life in my own life i reflecting on my own experiences my emotions my the way kind of i self-reflected on things what happened to me um i i guess i carried with me and as i think all people do a, a sort of an uneasiness a, a restlessness about what it all means at the deep down you know what's what's really down down mm. deep in the in the truth of the world and i think that sort of inner curiosity um when I started really listening to Jesus, and this is not just my experience, this is a very common experience, um, the simple act of opening up a Bible, even to Mark, it's actually my favorite gospel, starting at the start and reading it through, people tend to be changed. There, there seems to be something special about these words. And Jesus's words particularly seem, seem comforting and um, listening to him seems to put to rest and at ease that restlessness that we've carried with us. And so in a very deep sense, I feel like listening to Jesus um, is not optional for me. It's, um, it's an important part of actually being Simon um, and having a, a sense of uh, not only direction, but peace about my world and what I'm, how I act and interact with it. Uh, it's a lens through which I understand everything. So we should listen to Jesus. But So what kind of wisdom is being brought here then? Well, I think it's specifically to the friends Jesus brings with him. Um, it's the wisdom that you may not have yet completed your picture of who this Jesus is. And to be honest, Jesus uh, doesn't uh, often explain very clearly at this point who he is in his mission. He's a bit yep. coy about that. Uh, there seems an intentionality to him wanting to withhold that message because I think he's concerned, actually, that uh, people will get the... Immediately, the penny will drop. They'll think that he's the king and they'll think, oh, well, that obviously means he's going to bring a revolution with force and power. Yep. Um, and I think he's concerned about that. He knows that his way is actually to go to the cross. But that, that being said, I think he does... It is important for him and his ministry and for these people to know that, once again, this is God the Father... Um, expressing something very special and important about his son Jesus that he really is someone to listen to he does have the truth of God and um, what's really quite amazing is that we we as if we weren't at the mountain but we can go to the mountain as if we were there because we have the writers the biographers if you like yeah. of Jesus's life were at the mountain and you know so we can get access to this truth. We can, we can indeed listen to Jesus as we understand his word and his truth, which means effectively listening to God. Let me leave you with the Bible's answer to the big question, what wisdom is gained from mountaintops? From Mark chapter 9. Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Then a cloud appeared and covered them and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. 
I look forward to you joining us next time for bigger questions. Thanks to our guest today, Dr. Simon Angus. Thanks, Rob. Enjoy bigger questions? You can help us keep asking them for as little as $1 a podcast. Support the show. Go to patreon.com slash bigger questions.